This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And in our landmark change to the way we do child protection in Victoria, Aboriginal community organisations will now manage Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. In the budget, the Victorian government provided $47.3 million so groups like the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency headed by CEO Muriel Bamflett can keep children in Aboriginal guardianship, which will make it more likely they'll be reunited with family. And it's really great to have Ani Muriel back on Triple R and uh, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. And... Uh, this change, I understand, is already underway that, um, uh, starting last year. But maybe um, let us know what this new money's going to do and what you're already um, involved with. I think the money's much broader than just keeping children. I mean, at the moment, there are 2,000 Aboriginal children in out-of-home care in Victoria. And if you look at, I think, 50,000 people all up, um, that's an awful lot of our population in out-of-home care. And then if you think of all the families, so it is, the agreement is about um, looking looking after children while they're in care, but also to keep children out of the care. And so a lot of the funding within the agreement will be put towards family services to keep children out. But obviously um, a lot of the agreement has been around uh, funding guardianship, Aboriginal guardianship. So other countries, other um, Canada and America already fund Aboriginal or First Nations people to take on guardianship of children. Um, Victoria is the first state to actually transfer guardianship, which is responsibility for all decision-making, which currently rests with the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. But in Victoria, our legislation allows for um, transfer of guardianship to an Aboriginal um, CEO of an Aboriginal organisation, which in my case is me. And so at the moment, the current legislation allows for 34 children um, just at this stage to be transferred, but potentially for all Aboriginal children to be transferred to Aboriginal CEOs of Aboriginal organisations across the state. And so given that that Victoria is the the first state to um, implement this kind of change, is this the kind of thing that you think will have a a flow-on effect to other states around the country? Oh, there's no doubt. I think that um, the potential... I think Victoria's invested a lot in Aboriginal services, so we currently have 16 Aboriginal organisations across the state at various stages of taking on guardianship, and so some are very new to kinship care, out-of-home care. But the future is that Aboriginal people will take greater responsibility in Victoria and other states are certainly looking at it. But it is, you know, it is quite... um, It it requires us to really be vigilant in looking after children and it requires us to really make sure that we have systems and processes in place to protect children. And the name of the agreement is Wungarul Will Gap Gap Dua. Very good. I've practised that (laughs) with your assistant. And, I I mean, perhaps tell us what what this um, agreement sort of will do, it's, it, it translates as strong families. Look, I mean, I think that there's a commitment by, you know, the Victorian government to self-determination and um, the, the Wangaroo Will Will Gap Gap Duo has been driven by um, Jenny McCarkos and through the agreement under the massive reform agenda, the government really is looking at how do we actually change the trajectory, how do we stop the siloed funding and so there's a lot of work that's been happening but what's significant for Aboriginal is that um, we 
we've been recipients of a service system. We have a system that doesn't promote self-determination. It actually takes more away from families and children. And so this, we want as Aboriginal people to be able to have a system that empowers families, that gives back and lets them have control in their lives. Now, I, I we did an as-if pilot for guardianship a number of years ago and we had 13 children in that pilot. You know, we do a high-five when one child goes home. Six of the 13 children went home safely to family and are still living within those families. So I think that when you do the reunification work, when Aboriginal people do guardianship, I think they, we do it better because we know children of colour all over the world are more likely to go into care and stay in care longer and less likely to go home. So we want to turn the system around. We want it that children of colour, particularly Aboriginal children in Australia have the potential to be raised in their family and communities. Since Kevin Rudd's apology to victims of the stolen generations over 10 years ago, the number of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care, I understand, has roughly doubled. Mm. How significant will this, uh, this kind of policy or what's being implemented by the Victorian government do towards reversing that trend because it's quite uh, you know that was such a momentous occasion over 10 years ago yet the rate at which children have been removed has continued i think that we're starting to join the system up and so you look at 88 percent of aboriginal children come into care because of drug and alcohol family violence mental health we're now starting to have an approach where we're looking at family violence we're working with men and perpetrators the government is funding aboriginal service it's it's really pushing us because to exercise self-determination, you, um, it pushes you. And so we're starting to build expertise and across a number of areas to address these changes. And I think Victoria is really looking at how do we actually fund Aboriginal people to take greater control in areas where they can make the biggest influence. And so funding us to work with Aboriginal men to stop the violence against children, funding us to work with women around better you know, parenting, how do we actually support and put resources where our families need it. Obviously, the, you know, there's a lot of um, emphasis at the Commonwealth and state level through COAG, to, through the refresh, and, you know, the close the gap refresh. And so that's looking at broader areas of drug and alcohol, mental health, family violence, all of those big issues, the wicked problems, because you can't close the gap until you look at the issue of poverty. And so the Commonwealth's got a, a, a prosperity um, focus, and so how do we actually improve prosperity for Aboriginal people? Because the biggest percentage of Aboriginal people live in the most disadvantaged parts of every state and territory. There seems like there's so much going on. Yeah, um, sure. There's also the treaty process mm -hmm. here in Victoria, uh, which I know you're involved with. We've spoken to you about that numerous times. Is this also going to help and feed into these other um, changes that we're seeing and, and new funding that we're seeing? Look, I mean, we're obviously um, working at VACA. I mean, we're really keen to bed down and lock in. The, you know, the commitments of government and get, you know, we've started a journey towards, really towards self-determination um, and it would be disappointing. We haven't as yet got bipartisan support for the treaty process and so there's, a, um, you know, obviously the Victorian government's introduced the advancing tr the treaty process with the, Vic with the Aboriginal Victorians bill and so that bill will really be about um, having Aboriginal people be able to enter into a treaty. It's not the treaty making bill but it's a beginning process and I think what 
we in the Aboriginal you know, service system would want is all the agreements. We've got a, a justice agreement, we've got health agreements, we've got child welfare agreements, we've got all these agreements, but they're at the whim of government. You would want something that locks government into this continuing journey of self-determination and commi- commits to an ongoing commitment to funding us to do this work. And we do have a state election coming up this year. Is that kind of um, bipartisan commitment to the treaty process and all that goes with it something that, um, I guess, Aboriginal organisations such as VACA are are lobbying for or hoping we get an answer from before ahead of that election? Look, I I think all the Aboriginal... We we urge and everybody's um, urging as many Aboriginal people, not just Aboriginal organisations, to, you know, lobby the... Both all parts, part you know, the Greens, whether they're independent, to be able to support a treaty because it's not just in the best interests of Aboriginal people. It actually is in the best interests of all people um, to not have Aboriginal people doing well. Um, leaving Aboriginal people behind has always been, I guess, a scourge on, on Australia's society. And I think that most people, when you talk, and I've spoke at VCOS, VCOS a couple of weeks ago, and I said, do we? Do you lose anything by giving Aboriginal people self-determination? And you don't. And so by ours being empowered and ours contributing to this society and, and by seeing us as positively positive instead of the negative, does that take anything away from any of the citizens of Australia? No, it doesn't. And so Aboriginal people want to be able to contribute. They do want to be equal partners at the table, but we also want to be recognised as First Peoples. We have a status. This is our, you know, our country. We come from this country and we're a big part of this country. I was speaking with Muriel Bamflett, um, Annie Muriel's uh, CEO of VACA, and uh, speaking about uh, new budget money that's been put up so that Aboriginal uh, uh, community organisations will be uh, managed and be the guardians of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care and a whole range of other um, things as well. And, uh, I mean, something else that you've been involved with uh, is the redress scheme um, coming out of the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sex abuse um that again is just a a groundbreaking royal commission we we know so much more um about what's happened to to children throughout society um what's happening with the redress scheme now i think that we're now got the victorian government and the new south wales government buying into the redress scheme i think some of the major concerns for us as aboriginal people is the fact that um it doesn't you know there's been um the issue of whether prison people in prison can claim um, and get, you know, redress. And so it's been something we've been really advocating for. I think there are major concerns some, for some organisations as to how they will deal with compensation and how they will, you know, individually, you know, um, buy in or be impacted by redress through their insurance. So there's lots of things that we don't know. But I would encourage anybody um, that's been felt that they've been, you know, part of an institution and gone through the process to be able to go and get um, support from the support services and to please make, you know, m- make known that they are have been impacted because it's not just about monetary compensation; it's also about counselling and support because many of our uh, many. Aboriginal people and many people have been impacted by, you know, the Royal Commission and and the, you know, the impact of sexual abuse whilst in institutions. And you want 
those people to come forward. And there are many support agencies being set up to help those people today. And there's obviously compensation, and so people wanting redress should really come forward. And that that concern uh, about people that have served time mm. um, not being eligible, now this is something, is that still uh, got a question mark over it? I know a, a lot of people are incredibly concerned about that because people that have been abused as children are overrepresented in the justice system. And so the idea that then those people wouldn't be eligible if they spent a certain number of years in, in prison really was ringing alarm bells. But has that been, that's still not necessarily the case? It's still a question mark? It's, it's a question mark um, still with regard to the type of um, sentence they're um, serving. So if it's for sexual abuse, clearly um, there's been me- many objections for people that perpetrate sexual abuse, whether they should at all get compensation but a lot of the redress has mostly been about people that have served for minor offences and so served short sentences so clearly those things are within now um, scope and so there's getting greater clarity about what the offences and how that will you know um, clearly be determined but at this stage I think there is this they're starting to lean on the side of common sense. Mm. And, and something else, just to return briefly to the money in the Victorian government, as mm. well as the um, the $47.3 million that we've, we've spoken about already this morning, there was also, I understand, around $10 million towards addressing the overrepresentation of Indigenous youth in the justice system. How significant is that injection of funds to, to tackling that issue here in Victoria? Well, I think that um, under the justice agreement and the work that we've been doing, um, we've identified for a number of years that we continue to have hotspots within the state. Mildura, if you look at numbers of children, young people that are progressing from out-of-home care into juvenile justice, we haven't been able to break the cycle. And so we've got some fam- a lot of families within our, you know, our communities who need that extra support. And I think for young people, we can see that we've got hotspots in Latrobe Valley where young people there are more likely to end up in care, but also more likely to end up in juvenile justice. We know these families, and I think that we have to have a look at where are our young people and how do we put intensive supports into those young people, but also how do we actually do better assessment, better treatment responses. And so are we only just being punitive, locking young people up, or actually are we treating young people? And so I think that we need to have treatment responses. And I think that, you know, there's an under-representation really in looking at the numbers of young people that are actually not coping out there and that are, you know, at significant risk of youth suicide, drug and alcohol, mental health, all of those issues. Well, uh, until we see you again, all the best holding these governments to account. And um, it's always wonderful to have you in at Triple R. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Annie Muriel Bamplett is the CEO of VACA, um, speaking there about the Wungaroo Will um, Gap Gap do our uh, agreement with the government, which is putting more money into uh, Aboriginal uh, community organisations to manage Aboriginal children out of home care and a whole range of other things that we've spoken about this morning. And there's a lot happening, as there always is in the area of immigration policies governing the lives of refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, David Mann is with Refugee Legal, a very familiar voice here at Triple R, and uh, has popped by to update us on a range of issues. It's great to see you, David. Yeah. 
good morning. And I suppose we should, let's start with ministerial powers. Um, we're, we're reading in in sort of mainstream media or broader media that uh, the Home Affairs Minister has the power to cancel visas on character grounds now. Um, so people that don't aren't Australian citizens may be deported if they've committed crime. Um, maybe tell us a little bit more about that before we can find out what sort of crimes um, might land people in immigration detention. Yeah, well, look, these laws have been around for a while and what's happened in recent years uh, is that the, the laws have been tightened. They've become far more draconian and and also the use of them has become far more prevalent. So it's two things in one hit, which has resulted in effectively uh, these vast powers of the Minister of the Day, which happens to be at the moment Peter Dutton, of course, but it's the, the Immigration Minister or what's now the, the Department of Home Affairs, the Home Affairs Minister, who has these extraordinary extraordinary powers to uh, to intervene and to cancel someone's visa on what are called character grounds and uh, and that can result in people uh, being detained indefinitely in our country and it's happening more and more uh, to, to people who in many cases are people who can't actually return home because they've been found to be refugees. In fact, um, quite a number of people have been brought here, resettled as refugees from, you know, from uh, Sudan, uh, from other countries. Uh, and um, and what's happened in the very similar or the very common circumstance is that uh, these people have uh, been convicted of crimes, um, some of them serious, and I don't think we should shirk that. Um, that's that's reality. Um, but uh, then they've been sentenced and they've done their time uh, in accordance with the sentence. And then after that, so this is after having served a criminal sentence and been eligible for parole, They've then had their visa permanent residence cancelled and that means that they then are um, incarcerated uh, indefinitely. That it, and often at the moment Christmas Island has been used, going back to the old idea of the prison island, uh, and people are being held indefinitely. This is refugees I'm talking about, many cases refugees, uh, who can't return to their homeland and are stuck incarcerated on a remote island in our country. Uh, can these be appealed at all? I understand the Administrative <coughs> Appeals Tribunal is there to, to appeal these decisions. Is that effective? Yeah. or? or well, there are, there are two types of appeal. There's one through the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, but the Minister also has the power to override that. Um, and that's what I talk about, extraordinary, why I say extraordinary powers, vast and extraordinary powers. And... Um, and and in, in these types of circumstances, we're talking about usually the minister intervening personally, using powers that are under the Migration Act. Uh, uh, and yes, they can be appealed, but here's the problem. And we've had quite, by the way, we, we act for quite a number of the people in, the, in these situations, including some young men who you know, tragically have gone off the rails. They've done, look, they've done serious crimes, uh, some of them. And, and I want to emphasise that because I don't think that we're going to solve any of these problems by shirking that issue. But the question is what, how we should, uh, how we should uh, approach these, these um, really difficult issues. Well, well, the Human Rights Commission, I understand, said that these kinds of powers shouldn't be used to address antisocial behaviour among young people from migrant and refugee backgrounds and the kinds of crimes that I've heard reported are, you know, um, the, the ones that end up on the front page of the Herald Sun, the carjackings and some other violent crimes but mm. I understand it doesn't have to be violent crimes like that that can land people in these situations but what, what do you think about with regards to sympathy in the community for, I suppose, for 
giving people a second chance that have already been given a first chance in Australia? What, 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 do, how do you read that? Well, picking up on the first point, and that is that it's not just serious crimes, but it actually, and this is one of the, one of the areas where I talk about draconian changes in recent times, it's now offences cumulatively, um, it, which could amount to 12 months imprisonment. So cumulatively, a number of offences that could... So that, that, that can include very trivial offences, which result in someone being locked up in those circumstances to more serious crimes. But one of the fundamental problems here is, of course, our criminal law system, our legal system, has already decided how these matters to be dealt, dealt with, and that is through you know, a, a trial and then, if someone is convicted, uh, through a sentence. And once someone's done their time, one of the fundamental objectives is to ensure that that person can be, while, while they're in prison, rehabilitated, but then have a, have a chance to rehabilitate and to rebuild their lives. And here what we see is the very opposite because someone does their time and, you know, under our constitution, it is courts that have been given the power to issue uh, sentences, in, in, you know, involving incarceration. But here we see the executive, that is one of the other arms of government uh, under the separation of powers, stepping in over the top of that and saying, no, we'll impose another punishment on you effectively. It's another punishment by locking up indefinitely. And one of the fundamental problems here is that um, people literally sit there potentially for the rest of their lives, having done their time already. Uh, and this is, and, and the reason is they can't return because they've been found to be refugees and it would be too dangerous. They face the real prospect of being persecuted, tortured, killed, for example, in their home country. So that's the predicament at the moment. And the, the fundamental problem again is that we have laws that are allowing the minister of the day to have this vast personal power to, to impose that on someone uh, in circumstances where uh, it runs against the, the, the very fundamentals of the rule of law, I think. And uh, visa being cancelled on, on character grounds, I mean, that's a fairly general term. How much of a case needs to be made by the Minister to, to uh, you know, use that veto power? Well, increasingly, it's far easier to use because the powers have been broadened um, so so extraordinarily. So um, any, you know, accumulative offences of 12 months uh, or more of imprisonment can, can result in someone failing the character test. And then beyond that, it's a question of weighing up circumstances, countervailing circumstances, you know, both risks to the community, and that's one of the drivers of this, as opposed to um, other matters which are, we could broadly say are personal circumstances, mitigating circumstances, including humanitarian circumstances. Um, but the problem is that more and more these powers are being used uh, uh, to lock people up. Uh, in these circumstances with devastating effect. What about, I mean, you, you, as you say, um, uh, David, that you're acting, your Refugee Legal is acting for quite a lot of these people, often young people that are in this situation. What, what sort of dialogue is there with the police? Because we've heard, you know, that, uh, I mean, that they're at the coalface often of, of what's happening for some of these young people. What's happening with, with that? I, I would say broadly the police and other, uh, I think other sort of other elements or other players in the system, in the criminal justice system more broadly, I think there is a very, very profound level of concern about um, the use of these powers, this sort of double punishment. Because if they if, if they press charges or whatever and, and look, some of these crimes that need to be dealt with through the criminal justice system by the sounds of it, but knowing that by putting young people on this track might end them up in permanent immigration detention must play on their minds. Well, it does, but I think one of the purposes here is that, sure, people um, it should be held responsible. If they're, if they're culpable, be held responsible and, you know, um, and, you know, be punished. 
but the problem is that that is not the endpoint punishment and uh, this is that and we're talking about in many cases you know people who've come from very traumatic circumstances from you know brutal civil wars um, and uh, have been deeply traumatized and they're here trying to rebuild their lives uh, to to condemn them to this kind of you know indefinite detention runs against the grain one of the fundamental you know purposes of the criminal justice system and that is after punishment rebuilding you know rehabilitation and, and apparently there is a, a review into this it's been chaired by jason wood a liberal mp um former policeman he doesn't necessarily um his cv doesn't show that he would be necessarily sympathetic um to their plight but i mean uh, is there some hope that this inquiry might do something change something uh, I, I, I think that uh, this inquiry itself is, is unlikely to, to I, I, I think, to provide the, the big answers. I think that um, what we need to do is have a proper confrontation here with, um, you know, with the fundamental notion of justice in our country, and that is, are we prepared to allow the executive arm, that is the government, to be effectively um, condemning people into indefinite detention in these circumstances as a double punishment, giving them this power. And just back to your point, Dylan, about can you appeal? Yes, you can. We've had quite a number of um, clients appeal their cases to the courts. Some have been successful. Literally, um, uh, as, as they win their case, the minister um, yeah, almost immediately remakes the decision of cancellation to ensure that someone can't be released. And so there's this sort of cyclical process, mm. which means that appeals um, are really pyrrhic victories here. You know, they're, they're, they don't actually... Because the minister just remakes the decision um, of, to cancel again and you're sort of back in the same circumstance of having it to appeal and appeal. It's completely unsatisfactory. It's a, one of the terrible injustices of, of our times, I think, is that we have people who are just locked up indefinitely by our exec by our government. Yeah, and I asked earlier about sort of community attitudes. What what how do you read those about trying to address this issue? I mean, could can um, the I suppose people's uh, concern for human rights be um, sort of galvanized in in speaking back to government to say these extrajudicial powers are not in the best interests of, of Australian society? Look, it might be human rights. It might be something very different, and that is our basic obligation to people who are Australians. And these are Australians. And are we prepared to see other Australians treated like this? It's one thing to say that someone's committed a crime and does their time and that we're appalled by what they did or, you know, there's sort of, sort of uh, there's a condemnation of that conduct. That's one thing. But the consequence do we actually accept that this sort of severity of consequence is um, is part should be part of our legal system so whether it's a human rights argument or just a, an argument about you know do we accept our laws operating like this and uh, and imposing this kind of future on someone uh, you know or or and where could that go i think we need to ask that question where could that go when a government has such vast powers and continues to use them on other australians mm. and are there alternatives i mean and of course, there are alternatives. This morning, there's been news of a, a tanker being intercepted in Malaysia, carrying around, I think, 130 asylum seekers from Sri Lanka. They were believed to be heading to Australia, but it was intercepted in Malaysian waters. And the kind of rhetoric coming out from the government is all about, oh, you know, Operation Sovereign Borders has worked. We've stopped the boat successfully. And we know how that rhetoric was really, uh, you know, very strongly put out there by this government and previous coalition government, particularly, and Labor government as well. Um, have they essentially kind of won the narrative on this? issue because we don't hear so much about boat arrivals or from the people who are on these boats and, and suffering. 
Well, I think that the first point is that, you know, I know some might have a different position on this, but I, I think that the, the government's mantra about and policy of stopping the boats has, has actually effectively, they've effectively achieved that because there are very, there since since that, that you know, Operation Sovereign Borders went into full force, effectively um, there have been very few um, people coming by boat to Australia. So I think that the deterrence policy, I mean, what underpins this is deterrence policy and, and it has effectively uh, resulted in, uh, you know, very few um, boats uh, or very few people trying to get to Australia by boat. Um, and those that have tried have been turned back um, uh, to, for example, Indonesia or even to Sri Lanka. Uh, and or to other countries, and uh, and also that some some of those people have also been uh, exiled to Nauru or to Manus Islands. So I think that you know this kind of story highlights the extent to which the um, incredible extent to which uh, Australia has dedicated resources to keep people out to push them back. The real question is sort of not so much are they successful in this, but. Um, given our obligations to ensure that people fleeing from harm are not harmed again, what are we doing uh, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to effectively contribute to stabilising people's situations when they do flee? What are we doing to contribute in our region to um, you know, making safer um, the situation of millions of people who've had to flee in fear for their lives? And the big question here is, what are we going to do in the future in our region to, to actually provide some level, sort of improve protection and minimise harm to millions of people who, uh, who are in danger? Do you think there's a chance now to reset the sort of public conversation on this? So, I mean, we, we're going to have a, an election, in a federal election within the next year. Uh, do you think that it will immigration issues will feature there? I'm sure they will. And one of the, I, I think one of the main reasons is, and it's sort of one of the, I think, often one of the the, the tragedies of um, <clears throat> of recent Australian politics has been that um, that the coalition uh, successive coalition governments have had almost almost nothing else to point to as a quote unquote success other than stopping the boats and uh, one of the big problems with with that is that, uh, I mean, you'd almost sort of wish that there are at least one or two or three other issues that they could point to definitively, decisively and say, look, look at this great... But they so often just default to that issue uh, when um, when the chips are down or when they need need a distraction. You know, whatever it be, whether it be starting to create a sort of a, a fake war on uh, <coughs> alleged, <coughs> excuse me, alleged um, African gangs, you know, um, uh, or... Uh, or cracking down on um, you know on, on on people who've committed crimes by condemning them to indefinite detention, taking away people's you know uh, vulnerable people's meagre benefits while they're going through the process. You know, it just it seems endless the amount of um, and I should say this that when when they did sort of stop the boats, if you like, um, some time ago, um, one thing I thought is that one of the great challenges is going to be for this government. Um, how do you keep stopping boats when they've when they've sto- when they're stopped? You see, where, 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 <coughs> where do you go from there? While, while you take while you take a drink of water, um, David David Mann's with us from Refugee Legal. Um, we know people are still on remote islands yeah. in detention. Um, we have that US refugee swap that's still there apparently. Um, that is still ongoing. Um, where do you see that leading? Well, 
that's right. The, the only alternative at the moment, or the only, the only, if you like, solution of resettlement at the moment, uh, remains the US resettlement deal. And so, we still have around two thousand people marooned um, in both Nauru and and on Manus Island. Two thousand overall, and um, the numbers show the numbers show that um, there has been very little uh, in the way of. Um, uh, an overall solution to swiftly evacuate people to safety. What we do see is that the numbers at the moment are there's almost 300 people have been resettled to the US from Nauru and Manus Island collectively, and that's great for them. And I, I think that although as, as sort of aberrant a deal as it has been, uh, the US deal, at least almost 300 people have been resettled. And the signs are that more will be resettled under the deal, that it continues. But, of course, um, for the rest of those people who um, continue to suffer so deeply, that remains the only real option, other than the government extraordinarily still approaching refugees, including some people that we are helping, and, and offering money to return to places. Like, you know, seriously, can you imagine? This, this is serious. Offering money to Rohingya refugees to return to Myanmar which is undergoing, uh, you know, a, a genocide, you know, that, that as a genocide is unfolding, offering money to people found to be refugees. And so that that's the sharp end, if you like, mm. of a policy that <clears throat> is heavy on deterrence and very light on solutions for refugees. Yeah, and, and moving, I guess, from, I guess, some of the, the big picture issues to the here and now and the particular circumstances that, that we have here and, and, I guess, the individual yeah. clients that you work with at, at Refugee Legal, how effective are the settlement support <coughs> services we have in place at the moment for, for people who, yeah. who have been deemed to be refugees or those who are asylum seekers? Well, there's been some big changes and they're, they're afoot right now. Um, so there are thousands and thousands of people, and this is one of our big areas of work at the moment, thousands of people who are still going through this so-called fast-track process that means that they're still seeking asylum as refugees having come by boat in recent years. These are the people, effectively, that weren't sent to Nauru or Manus Island and there were around, well, around 31,000 people, about 15,000 people nationally and about half of that, that figure around 7,000, 7,500 are actually in Victoria. So they're, they're in our community and they're going through the process of seeking asylum. And for them and others that are seeking asylum, um, there have been support services for particularly vulnerable people who are on bridging visas going through the process so that if they can't get work, that they can actually get a modicum of support. And it's called the Status, Status Resolution Support Services, or SRSS. So if, any, if you ever hear SRSS, that's it. And what it does is provides people with a very uh, you know, small amount of um, social... Yeah, it's, it's essentially an income support and medi access to Medicare um, and emergency housing type package and there are um, very significant sort of you know, radical changes that have just been introduced um, and they're, they're taking effect at the moment to significantly um, uh, strip back the program which means that it's going to be for most people they're going to actually be um, their benefits are going to be uh, stripped from them and it's going to be very very few people that is those that are deemed to be to effectively not be able to find employment because they're incapacitated in some way um, that is extremely vulnerable in that sense or single mothers with pre-age pre-school age children um, so uh yeah, thousands of people who were getting this support, um, this very, very sort of um, you know, modest form of support, are going to have it stripped away from them. Can I add to it this that, and we have we have clients in this situation who um, have been stripped of their SRSS support, you know, sort of without notice. 
uh, on the basis that they have been found um, in the last 12 months to have received or sent uh, to others um, up to $1,000 or more. So literally this is in a 12-month period if they've sent a small amount of money to family overseas or received any money, their, their bank accounts have been monitored and they've literally had their, their support stripped um, and uh, and the government is getting cracking down more and more on this kind of... So the government's monitoring the bank accounts? Yeah, monitoring bank accounts and... Um, and uh, the, the idea being that um, somehow uh, if you've received any money, um, you know, that amounts to or sent, you know, it's together, sent or received, uh, up to $1,000 in 12 months, then you somehow um, uh, should be found ineligible uh, on the basis, presumably, that you don't need that money. It's ex- quite extraordinary. It's, it's biggest belief and it has caused ex- huge uh, distress and harm to quite a number of people that we help. David, there's so much that we've just covered this morning. Um, David Mann, Refugee Legal, um, even though a lot of these issues are not in the headlines at the moment, there's still so much going on. And um, thanks for bringing our awareness to them today. And we'll see you again soon on Triple R. Thanks a lot. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.